Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. This is Chicky Fitzgerald with the Game Changer Network, and we are going to talk about the role that your mind plays in helping you to change your game. And the book that we're going to be talking about today is called Elite Minds, How Winners Think Differently to Create a Competitive Edge and to Maximize Success. And with us today is the author, Dr. Stan Beecham. Stan, welcome. Thank you, Chicky. Stan, why don't you give our listeners just a little bit of a thumbnail uh, about you personally. Uh, you know, tell us about the doctor part of your name and, and uh, sure. what you do as your day job. And uh, just give us a little perspective on how you got from uh, from where you started to where you are today and, and being an author and, and uh, what, what you're doing uh, with this whole Elite Minds, minds concept. Okay. I, I like most kids, uh, grew up playing ball and, and thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And then, of course, you get to college and realize that uh, – you got to get a job someday unless you're a superstar, <laughs> which I wasn't. And and I had an interest in psychology just simply because I just found human beings to be kind of the most interesting thing to look at, talk about, study about. And so in, in, in undergraduate school at the University of Georgia, about that time in the early 80s, the whole field of sports psychology was relatively new in the U.S., and so I, I got interested in it pretty quickly on and, and started reading and studying as much as I could and actually had the good fortune as an undergraduate student to begin to work with uh, the kickers on the football team at University of Georgia. And uh, and then kind of left that and, and went on and pursued uh, a master's in just general psychology, worked as a psychotherapist for a few years, uh, realized I needed to get a doctor to do what I wanted to do, went back and got a doctorate in clinical psychology, uh, thinking that I would be a clinical psychologist. And after spending a lot of time in psych hospitals and other clinical settings, realized that wasn't really what I wanted to do <laughs> and went back to where I started, which was the University of Georgia. And Vince Dooley was the athletic director at the time. And he hired me to come in and start a sports psychology program that was in the early nineties. Oh, wow. Oh, but yeah. well, you're like the, the, the mixture. If I put both of my kids in a bag and shook them up because right. my son is still in high school and he loves football, uh, but he also plays tennis. And so, you know, very, very different psychology for those two games. And he's right. very small, so he doesn't get to play as much on the football team, but he is an amazing tennis player. And as a sophomore, he's uh, likely going to be either the number one or number two seed this year. And my daughter just started her first year at the University of Warsaw in Poland in a five-year really? master's program. And, wow. and so she she's kind of at the place where you are, where she knows she loves the study of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but she hasn't decided and, and fortunately doesn't have to decide. Uh, but the beautiful thing about uh, studying in Europe is she was able to start right away. Uh, every single class she has is psychology. 
you know, they don't force you to take all of that basic stuff in your first uh, couple of years of school. Right. So it'll be right. interesting to see uh, her journey, you know, and, and sports psychology is something I've told her, you know, would be would be a very interesting thing. So let's talk a little bit about how you, you uh, or what you do during the day, right? What What's your day job? Sure. Uh, so, now that now that you got to that place and started at at at, uh, at Georgia, what happened after that? Well, what what happened when I was at Georgia working just with athletes? We had 19 teams at the time. I thought that's what I would do the rest of my life. Wow! And of course, when you get married and start having kids, and you realize, oh, you actually have to make money too. Uh, <laughs> I I realized that I needed to kind of you know begin to think about what other things I might do, and it just so happened about that time. We were working, uh, I was, at the University of Georgia. I was actually getting the coaches to allow me to sit down with the whole team because what I realized in working with athletes individually is much of what affects our performance is not just our own skills and abilities and attitudes, but the people around us. And so most of the coaches agreed to allow me to sit with their athletes without them in the room, which is scary to a lot of coaches, as you might imagine. And we started having tremendous success with that. To the point that it, you know, shows up in the in the sports page, and of course, business people read the sports page. And one day, I get a call from a guy who Dupont had a big plant just outside of Athens, Georgia, at the time. And basically, the guy running this huge plant for Dupont said, "You know, I read this article about what you're doing with athletes, and this is exactly what I'm trying to do with my managers. Will you come and talk to me about it?" And I, and I did. And then he said, "You know, I want to hire you to work with, you know." my managers, the leaders in the plant. And I said, I don't know anything about business. And he said, yes, you do. It's the same thing. You know, performance is performance. And, right. and, you know, creating an environment where people can perform at their best is the same. And, of course, I quickly realized he was right. And so I started doing that. I started, I had some free time um, to do research and other things when I was at Georgia. So I started going out working with these managers at DuPont, which led to me joining a consulting firm in Atlanta of psychologists who just work with business. So I went from working just with athletes to now just with business people. And I did that for a few years. And then in 2002, I I decided to go out on my own. And then since that time, I've been doing a combination of the two. So I have a week where, like two weeks ago, I was at the University of Arkansas working with their athletes. I mean, this Monday, I'm at a nuclear power plant uh, oh, wow. Yesterday, I'm working with a construction company in Baltimore. So one of the things I really love about my work is the populations that I work with are very diverse. And what I find is, is that when you can go into all these different competitive arenas, whether it's a sports team or business, you really learn a lot and you continue to be stimulated by the differences and the different challenges. So, you know, to, to answer your question about what I do Every week is different, and that's, right. I think, what I love most about it. And I'm working with, you know, all different types of businesses, you know, from people at the CEO level down to middle management and, right. uh, you know, college Olympic professional athletes. And I just find it to be really interesting and informing. And, of course, that, you know, really led me to feel like I had gained some insight into Right. You know, why is it that so very few of us really function to our full capacity, our full potential, and where most of us have, have great ability, but we never access it? And that right. was really kind of what began to drive me to think I should probably put some of these things down on paper. 
<laughs> and um, and so that that's really how the book came about is well, is, is really from some of the things I learned through my work. Got it. That's an amazing journey, uh, Stan. You know, uh, one of the things, and you may have thought about this, I, I do a lot of work. I, I've had a consulting firm for 20 years, so uh, I'm, I'm actually on the other side of that now, starting uh, my second technology company. And mm-hmm. uh, But I happen to be here in Philadelphia this week working uh, with a, a uh, large company in the travel industry, uh, which has been, you know, kind of my sector uh, for the bulk of my adult life. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have watched what's happened in my own industry, and you may, may see this with various people that you work with, when the private equity world comes in and, and invests in companies that might have been family-owned or, you know, uh, just sure. small businesses. And uh, it occurs to me that there is a huge demand for understanding what you do and the impact on your clients with the investment community. Because quite often they come in and they analyze companies just based on the face value of, you know, the performance and and the volume and, and, you know, the metrics of the business. But what they always miss, and I've done a lot of merger and acquisition work over my uh, career, is they always miss this role that the mind, right, and and this Mm -hmm. elite thinking, that Mm -hmm. if you can just harness that, uh, the profitability is really unlimited at that point. And conversely, if people have that old, and I, I forget who it was who called it stinking thinking, you know, which was just status quo, and I've got to accept it because this is the way it's always been, uh, which is the antithesis of elite thinking, right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the impact on profitability is enormous. And I would love to know, and, and maybe you have tracked this over your career, and if you haven't, you should, the profitability difference after you come in, right? And and I believe that what you do out of all of the different kinds of consulting that there is has the greatest potential for uh, a true bottom line impact. Yes, you're, you're right. I guess, you know, the tricky part is there's so many factors that are involved in human performance, both individually and collectively, right? that it really uh is a tricky thing but i can i can tell you that i totally agree with what you, what 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 you just said in other words a lot of people they manage the business from the bottom line so they have a handful of metrics and that's Absolutely. really what they focus on and they talk about the numbers you know what they don't talk about is how did we get to that number what is the process <laughs> exactly. And, exactly and and they really they really fail i mean they understand leadership processes and execution but what they frequently miss is the influence and effect that a leader has on other people. And so we know, for example, that the number one reason why people leave a job is the relationship that they have with their boss. In right. other words, it's not a good relationship. And so I can see when I go into an organization, if you have, like I was at a couple of different organizations this week, and one organization is a small family-owned business, but the leader's there's just a tremendous amount of what I call psychological glue that holds people together. Right. So people who care about each other, who act in such a way that the leadership makes decisions that are in the best interest of the entire organization versus themselves, those organizations outperform wow. significantly. What I see over and over again where 
in, in corporate arenas where the leadership is really focused on themselves, their own career, how do I make more money, you know, what's in it for me. They really don't act in the best interest of their people, and the board of directors or the investors fail to see it. Right. And 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 so what happens is is a piece at a time the company falls apart. In other words, those leaders can't can't hold the team together because people don't want to you know bust their tail to make you more money. And and it's <laughs> and, so and, right. and it's so obvious to you and I, I guess, and. It just surprises me that they let that go on and on and on and then reward these guys, you know, with with a lot of money or stock options because maybe they have a good product at a good time. But the fact of the matter is that the leadership fails and you right. can see it in sport, too. You know, I've seen over and over again, it's probably easier to measure in sport, actually, because they do a better job uh, of, of measuring performance, I think. Business yeah, I mean, does. you do. Exactly. Yeah. You've got clear performance indicators, uh, you know, and, and again, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a, a, a football mom to the nth degree and, and football right. season just ended. Uh, but, you know, I mean, taking a look at the individual performance, uh, the performance against your competitors and, and for each mm-hmm. game, looking at how you, you uh, mesh against them. And corporations and, and even small companies don't really understand that. So let's let's shift gears to, to the actual book itself because I, I okay. want to make sure that we give due time to, to the actual sure. content. So you, in the book Elite Minds, you've split it into three parts. And the first part is about understanding the mind. The second mm-hmm. part, which I think is the most fascinating, is about how your mind fails us. And then right. the last part is really becoming who you want to be and, and really em- embracing those things mm-hmm. uh, that you've covered in, in the first two parts. So let's, let's just jump right into understanding your mind. Um, we all have heard the term mind over matter. And mm-hmm. tell me the role that plays in, in really understanding our capabilities when, when something seems impossible. Well, what, what, I, you know, what I really tried to, to – to capture in that first uh, uh, chapter is simply that if you have physical ability, so let's use an athlete, for example, right. if you have tremendous physical ability, but yet when you get into the competitive arena, you freeze up from the pressure or just can't get out of your own way, the, the, the mind, if you will, will then neutralize the physical ability. And so what happens is we put in, in, in sport, we put great weight on an athlete's physical attributes, but not his ability to access them, which would be the mind. In business, as you mentioned earlier, we put great weight on the educational background that a person has or the experience, the places that they've worked. But we fail to understand that the belief that they have about themselves and other people ultimately dictates the, dictates the effect that they're going to have on the organization. And so the point I was really trying to make is, is, is that, you know, having physical ability and talent is important. Being smart and having experience is important in business. But if you don't have the right mindset, it gets neutralized. Right. And I right. see this over and over again. And so the point I'm trying to make is, is that the mind is going to trump all that. You could also get into more a physiological explanation and basically say, Everything that you do starts with a mental process. For example, one of the things that I want people that I work with to understand is, is is that most everything starts with a thought. You have a thought, which is generated from your belief system at an unconscious level. That thought 
it leads to an emotional experience, right? In other words, if I feel anxious, it's because I'm I think anxious, and that will in turn dictate what I do and not do. And so we do a really mm-hmm. good job of focusing on on you know measuring behavior and, and and creating metrics to measure behavior. What we tend to fail to do is what is the thought and emotional process that preceded that. And that's right. kind of the essence of the mind over the matter. Right, and I apologize for the uh, for the train whistle in the background. I uh, <laughs> I am sitting sitting in the apartment of a of a yeah. dear friend here, and that was the most quiet place to have the radio show today. Um, I want to talk a little bit, and again, I mentioned you know I've got a. a 16 year old son who is uh, mm-hmm. on the small side, but uh, he is the only one on the uh, as a sophomore. He's the only one on the entire team that can catch four footballs and not drop any. Like I mean, mm-hmm. catch them and keep all four, not not catch four in a row. And yeah. and he's got enormous hands. He's really really agile, but right. his belief system about himself has to do with the fact that he is only, I mean, let's say he's five foot five and 120 mm-hmm. pounds soaking wet. Right. Right. And, and, and his coach's belief about him is also mm-hmm. due to his stature and not due sure. to his ability. So his sure. behavior, um, you know, as he's sitting on the bench most of the year, like he gets put in at the end of the game. Now, hopefully next year that will be a little bit different as a junior, mm-hmm. but, but so Talk to us a little bit. I mean, it's easy to, to observe, particularly if you are a sports parent. It's easy mm-hmm. to relate to the, the uh, behavior of, of athletes and their coaches. Talk to us about how that uh, translates into the corporate environment, the beliefs and behaviors about people. Yeah, so one of the things that I want folks to understand is the beliefs that you have about yourself, you didn't create those. You adopted someone else's belief system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as a child, whatever your parent tells you about you, or you know your early mentors, teachers, and coaches, you 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 develop you hold that belief as your own, right. even though it's someone else's. So we adopt belief system. And what I want leaders to understand, whether it be a coach or a business leader or a parent, that you have a belief about a given individual, and you're going to convey that through word and action what that is. Now the question is. If if you are trying to help develop someone and your belief is that they're not talented enough or big enough, that's going to actually affect their development. What I see over and over again in, in sports specifically is the best coaches, they see the best in their athlete and they coach that kid up to that ideal image, if you will, that they have. In other words, Really good coaches almost always think the athlete is better than he or she does themselves, okay? And so because you have that belief, you can get the best of the person. Most coaches, most business people don't do that. They see what's wrong with you and then fail to coach you up to your full potential, okay? And so I want people to first understand what is their own belief about themselves? Am I good enough or not? Where did that come from? And then look at the people around me and who are the people telling me that I'm competent and capable and who are the people that aren't? Right. And if you're hanging out with folks who see the worst of you and see the best of you, there's no way you're getting to your best. That you right. have to, number one, have skill, talent, ability, and then you've got to place yourself in an environment where people also see you as competent and able. 
And so you'll see people all the time quit a job because their boss doesn't hold them in high opinion or a kid will quit a team simply because the coach doesn't believe in them, right? Right. And so this happens at at all levels and in, 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 in every arena that you can imagine. Right, right. You know, and, and the next chapter is actually one of my favorites because I talk about this all of the time. Uh, the name of the chapter is Better is the Enemy of Best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this because, you know, again, if, if we're just going for incremental change, sure. uh, it's really hard to be the best that we can be. Well, I think, first of all, we are a culture that is obsessed with better. And what I mean by that is no matter what level a person is at, and I've worked with people who are literally, you know, the best in the country or the world at what they do, and those people frequently talk about, I need to get better. And that belief system is really not so much about performance, but it's about how I see myself. And so most people see themselves as, not complete, not good enough, not there yet, all right, or, there, or that there's some handicap or problem that I must overcome. And so this obsession with better is in large part because I don't think that I'm enough, that I'm worthy enough or good enough yet. And the other problem with the better model that we preach is better is about the future, right? In other words, you get better in the future. Right. And and the problem with that is all performance and all behavior happens in the now. It happens in the present. So for me, the question is, right now, right this moment, what can I do? And the answer is, I can do my best. Yes. And there's no better than my best. In other words, if I'm doing my best, there's not more. But we believe in this concept of 110%. And this is all bought into no matter what you do, it's not enough. And we think that that actually drives behavior. In reality, it's an inhibitor. So what I encourage people to do is to let go of trying to do it better and simply focus on what's the best that I can do now because I can can do best in the present moment. Like right now with you, I can do the best that I can with the interview. You follow me? Oh and, yeah, and, no, and, and when and you move I'm, to the future with better, it's a distraction from the from performing now. See, most people's problem is is not that they need to get better; it's that they're unable to access their best. And one of the things that keeps us from accessing our best is these thoughts about the future or these thoughts about the past. Wow, I, I will tell you uh, that. Just in in the time it took you to describe that, I had the most important revelation, I think, of my parenting life for Mm. my son, because we have always been pushing him just, you know, next time do it better, right? And and I think we are contributing to a, a bad cycle there. Um, well, it's I, a cultural belief, Chicky, that we right. haven't really stopped to evaluate. I mean, the, the the fact that you do it and, and I've done it is simply because that's what we do. It's the right answer. You know, the right answer is try to do better, you know, in terms of the, the cultural belief. Well, we belief. thought it was the right answer, didn't sure. we? Sure. <laughs> and all I'm asking people to do is let's stop and examine that. In other words, do athletes get better because they desire to get better? Or do athletes improve because they more frequently access their best? Wow. And and I think what we fail to understand is if you're really trying to improve, 
the way you're going to do that is by consistently doing the best that you can. You with me? Yeah. So the athlete who goes out over a week of practice and really performs at a high level, say five out of six days of practice, is going to improve faster than the kid who only did it three out of six days. Yes. But it, it's it's this it's this belief that no matter what you do, you can always do more. We keep holding that up as as as, as some goal that we should be seeking, and what we should really do is is really push that to the side. Oh man, and that so, makes so much yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I want to uh, get to the other sections of the book. So you know, let's just talk uh, very briefly about uh, the the word that you use in in this next chapter, which is about flow, the importance of flow. Flow. Okay. So flow and zone, these are words that really are, are are about describing when when a human being is at his or her best, psychologically, mentally, what's going on, okay? And what's interesting is if you look at what's happening to the brain, both physically and emotionally, uh, what you find out is that when we're at our best, it's actually very different than what we would think we would need to do to be at our best. Let, let me give you a couple of examples of this. So we know that when when an athlete or even a, any creative person is in this zone or flow, we have no awareness of ourself. In other words, I'm not thinking about me and how am I doing? Am I doing it well enough? You know, what are you going to think? What are other people going to think? I'm just totally engaged in the task. In other right. words, there is there is no me. And what's interesting about this to me is if you go and look at the fundamental spiritual teachings in the world right now, they all go back to this whole concept of don't worry about you, it's going to be okay. Right? And a lot of these right. enlightened people talk about the 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 self dissolving, that the ego dissolves and that you don't have concern and worry for yourself. And so what these spiritual masters have been teaching for, you know, the last 2000 years is exactly what these great athletes are experiencing when they're at their best, which is no concern for self. The second thing that happens is this this thing that we call time. And we think time is a thing, but it's not. It's just a construct that humans have created. Right. And when you're at your best, the, the concept of time goes away. You don't think about how long it's going to take or how I'm doing it. And time and space both get distorted. And what you see frequently with athletes and even creative people is that when you're really at your best and your mind is quiet and just focus on what you're doing, your perception of time changes and frequently mm. it slows down. And one of the things that you'll hear athletes say when they're not playing well is that it feels like everything's happening too fast or your friend who's really stressed out, I don't have enough time, I'm too busy. Their perception of time is it's going too fast. And that's actually generated by thought because time is actually, you know, not changing. It's your perception. The third thing that I think is probably the most interesting is that when we're at our absolute best, when we're in the zone, is that whatever it is that we're doing, even if we're exerting a lot of effort, our perception is is that it's effortless. In other words, we're we're not pushing against anything. There is no friction. And if you think about culturally, the 
you know, and that we live in this culture that basically says hard work is, is really what, you know, it's not just work. It has to be hard work, right? <laughs> that there's this right. sense that if, if you're not struggling, you're not doing it well. Well, there's some truth to that in the preparation time. But when you're actually at your best and it doesn't matter what you're doing and you may and you may be exerting a lot of effort, you don't perceive yourself to be exerting effort. It feels effortless. Right, the sensation right. is is that it's just happening on its own. Right. And so this is one of the things that I think is really interesting is that when we're at our best, there's this ease and flow that takes place. And once people have that experience, it's almost kind of a, a high, if you will. They they want to get back to it. Like, how did I do that? Right. But you don't do it, but you don't do it by trying to do it. You 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 actually get there by giving up control, not trying to seize control. In other words, it happens mm-hmm. not because you try to make it happen. It happens because you let it happen. That you get out of the way. That you take you take yourself out of the picture. And so right. if you and think we're about gonna, you know, we're circle back uh, I'm sorry uh, I'll let you finish your thought but I was going to say no. we're going to circle back to that when we talk about part three of the book uh, okay why don't you go ahead and finish your thought about you were talking about how you don't get there by trying to get there well yeah I mean here again I mean think think about from a performance standpoint how many messages in our culture have to do with effort hard work 110 percent you know it's that sense that if you're not fighting and you're not struggling then you're not doing it correctly mm-hmm and, and I see people all the time that they get anxious because there's no struggle left. And they think, well, it's supposed to be hard. <laughs> but what I'm saying is this is this is the belief that we have that, you know, right. life has to be a struggle. Right. Or or if you're, you know, the person who, you know, if, if I work 60 hours a week and you work 80, then you win, right? If, <laughs> if I didn't suffer much this week at work and you had a really hard, work then we we hold that up we admire the person who's you know all beaten up and bloody and is you know we think that that is you know the answer and then we see folks who perform at a high level and it looks effortless i think this is one reason why we watch sport on tv i mean if you think about it you're watching an athlete who's really at their best it looks effortless you know or a great dancer or anyone doing anything physically when they master it when you watch it, it looks effortless, and that's part of the beauty of it, right? I mean, exactly. part of the beauty of the part of the beauty of dance and sport is that it looks easy, and um, we we still, I don't think, really have a good understanding of that in terms of how that would apply to our own lives. But right, it does. But, it applies uh, in to all order of to it. understand that, we have to go to the next thought process, which is how the mind fails us. So when when our mind isn't so elite, right? Mm-hmm. And and we do experience failure. And and you know, again, I've told this story many many times on this show. Uh, my last entrepreneurial venture, which was actually my first real uh, venture on my own, was mm-hmm. what I call a spectacular failure. But I mm-hmm. believe that failure. Uh, if I would dwell in it, then my mind would be failing me. But I am in my next startup right now, my next technology mm-hmm. company, and I am using that as a model how not to do it, right, because that was not effortless. And I want mm-hmm. this one to be friction-free, right? right. So um, give, give us some other examples of failure driving success. Well, I, I, for me, it starts with most people's definition 
of success, Chicky, is the absence of failure or the avoidance of failure. And what I think we need to do is rewrite that definition and understand that success is actually a response to failure. In in other words, if you're doing, if you're going at life full steam ahead and you're challenging yourself and you're venturing off into new things, okay, if you walk in the woods enough, you're going to get lost, right? But getting lost is not a bad thing. If you try new things in business, it's not going to go the way you wanted it to. And what's interesting is when it doesn't go the way I want it to, I call that failure, right? Or if I didn't get the result I wanted, it's failure. No, it just means it didn't go the way that you thought it did. So if we can explain to kids who are coming along in life that the goal is not to avoid failure, the goal is actually to go in search of it, okay, to go looking for the difficult, to go stand on the edge and look over. And, and, And when it doesn't go the way that you want it to, simply get up and go again, right? I love the definition of failure, which is, you know, you know, fall down 99 times, get up 100, right? right. And so what's interesting is when you study the people that we think of as, the, as these great people, what you find out is, is that they failed much more than you thought they did, right? Yes. But they just, how they responded to the failure, which is what is interesting. And and that's very different than a model where you succeed by not failing. And so part right. of a lot of people's problem is simply is they don't understand that failure is part of the process and a necessary part of the process. So well, they, I think the other know, thing, the other thing has to do with uh, the next chapter, which is the curse of per- perfection, that if you right. believe that success is perfection, right, then you're destined to fail. Right. Well, I think what we have to do is first understand what truly is the definition of perfect, and it's not the one that we hold in our culture. That the definition, the word really comes from the Greek, and it shows up in the New Testament. Most people where I live have kind of come from a Judeo-Christian background, and so there's right. this commandment, if you will, to be perfect, right, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And right. we interpret that as to be sinless or don't ever mess up, when right. in reality that word perfect when you bring it back to the Greek, it means to be whole or complete. Okay. Mm. So to be a perfect person means to be fully and completely you with all of your dents and scratches and blemishes. And that is very different than trying not to mess up because what I think happens is, is that actually when you try to be perfect, you actually end up being less than who you are you actually dilute yourself when you try mm. to be mistake-free. And wow. what I want people to understand is is put yourself out there, be fully and completely who you are, which means some people aren't going to be okay with that, and, and play the hand that way. And that's really about, you know, truly getting comfortable and accepting yourself, right? Right. And, right. and when you get in that place, like, for example, I've, I tell people now, you know, I've at age 55, I have – finally given up trying to do it better or do it a certain way that I understand I'm not a one-size-fits-all guy okay not everybody's not everybody's going to want to be my best friend not everybody's going to hang out with me some people like me some people don't and really being okay with that but but what's unacceptable to me at this point is to pretend to be something other than what I am or to to present myself in a way that's not authentically who I am that's really what we should be encouraging people to do and and that and that is the definition of perfect 
Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And again, you know, it's funny because I, I'm listening uh, to what you're saying with uh, uh, the two hats on, you know, my business consultant hat, mm-hmm. uh, well, and, and at the same time, my entrepreneurial hat, and then my per- sure. <laughs> parenting hat. And I can mm-hmm. tell you that a copy of Elite Minds is going to be under the Christmas tree for my son. Um, Thank you. Well, no, I, I'm serious. I'm not saying that to flatter you. Mm-hmm. It Everything you are talking about is really at the core of, of who he can be, right? And mm-hmm. and his best is so amazing. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that's helped me is that I've spent about six years early in my professional career working with college students. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, when kids get away from home for the first time, I just think that is such a fertile time. And I learned so much about uh, human development, you know, working with adolescents and college kids. This really helped me with adults because the fact of the matter is every one of us who's an adult, you were a 15-year-old and you were a 14-year-old and you were an 18-year-old, and you can remember parts of that, right? (laughs) <laughs> you know, and you re- and you well, remember what yeah, it, you remember what it was like to be a child in your parents' house, and you remember what they told you about what you can and can't do, and so it's just um, yeah that that I I I say that because I get a lot of grown-ups say I gave my kid the book and they really liked it and I was surprised that they liked it and I think that um hopefully that you know that that time that I spent with college kids has really helped me kind of get that age and the, and understand the challenges of it. Right. Right. So uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, this issue of the myth of the 110%. Uh, Give us a little insight into that. So basically, you know, that the whole 110% has come out of, you know, sport and, and other backgrounds where really what you're trying to do, someone's trying to get you to do everything that you can, right? Mm -hmm. And the belief is, is that even though you think you're giving it all you have, you really actually have more. And there's actually truth to that from a, from a physiological standpoint, that people who research things like weightlifting, they say that even the Olympic athletes are only doing 80% of what they're actually capable of doing. I'm not sure how they measure that, but you, you see a lot of that kind of research and data. And, What I find is that when you really, really push and struggle, you don't actually do better, but you frequently do worse. You can really see this in high-technique sports, okay? Tennis, golf, swimming, running. So sports where there's a lot of technique and you're using your whole body, what you find out is if you actually try with less effort, do less than 100%, you actually get a, a a better outcome. And it, when you first say this to people, they think it's crazy. And I gave an example in the book of I have the good fortune of working with the University of Arkansas and a number of their teams, and one of them is the men's track and field team, which is the most prolific sport program in the history of the NC2A. They've won more national championships than any other team in any sport across the NC2A. They've won 41 national championships. And Chris Bucknam is a friend of mine and the coach there, and we were talking about this, what I call the law of least effort, right? And, you know, and he kind of kind of looked at me like I had six heads. And I said, look, just 
Buck, you know, when you take the kids out there, you know, ask them to run at 90% effort. Ask them to run at 80% effort. Ask them to run at 85 and just measure and see what they do. And so he did. When I came back, he said that the number's 87. And I said, what do you mean? He said, when I ask a kid to give somewhere between 85 and 90% effort, that's when they do the best. In other words, what can actually happen in this is by trying hard, you actually create more tension in your body, which actually slows you down. And I've done this with a lot of, I mean, with a kid punting a football, you know, with a swimmer swimming, you know, with, with a gymnast doing a certain thing. I frequently, when I see a kid who's struggling, I say, don't try as hard or do it at 50%. And then I gradually take them up. Right. And and so, again, because we have this 110% thing in our head, we're actually over trying, if you will, which is actually impeding the ultimate performance. And so we just have to be willing to say to people, you know, it, you don't have to make it hard. <laughs> you know, success and doing well is, again, it, it you don't, you know, whoever suffers the most doesn't win, but Right. You know, we have a lot of people, and they just really are embedded in the suffer fest. And if they're not suffering, they think they're doing it wrong because that's what they've been told. Right, right. Um, you know, I mentioned that we were going to circle back to uh, become the person you want to be. And again, I, you know, mm-hmm. I wish we had the time to go through each of these individually. But sure. uh, the one that I love, and maybe it's because of the simplicity of it, and and uh, I suspect that this should have been considered as the title of the book, which is Be, Do, and Have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, we, again, there are cultural things. If you grew up in the Western culture, it's very much about what are you doing, right? Performance. In the Eastern culture, there's value on being. You know, I think we forget that we're human beings. Yeah. We're not human doings. And, we don't really encourage people to sit and be and become aware of self. I think the other thing about Western culture is that we're very much obsessed with what we have. And so when you ask people, what do you want? They'll usually like, especially this time of year, right? If I say, Chicky, what do you want? You might say, well, I wanted this and, you know, name off a piece of jewelry or a new car. This is what I want. You know, and it has to do with a, you know, a particular thing I have. Yes. And, and, and I'm more taken about of a lot of people say, well, I want to be more successful or I want to have more money. Okay, well, what would you do? If you had more money, tell me how it okay. would be different. And what's interesting is most people can't because all they'd say is, well, if I had more money, I'd buy a bigger house and another car. Yeah, but you're still you. How How is any of that affecting you? Right. Um, every now and then people say, well, I would travel more. I would, you know. Or they might even say, well, I would spend more time volunteering. Well, why would you want to do that? And they really get back to there's an internal state that we want to have, right? There's a there's a sense of peace and joy and contentment that I think we all long for. What's interesting is we go about it differently. Right. And and I really, in my work with people, really try to get them to focus on, you know, what is your experience of yourself right now? In other words, a lot of times I'll be talking to someone and they're they're just kind of a chronically anxious person. They worry a lot. And and I'll say to them, how are you doing right now? I mean, as you're sitting there in that chair, feeling your body in the chair, how are you doing right now? And they go, oh, right now I'm fine. And I say, well, if you're fine right now, then you're fine because all there is is right now. 
Right. You know, to 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 really bring yourself present and to be present with yourself. And what most people who are really troubled and conflicted people, if they can stop thinking and just experience themselves in the here and now, they'll come to the conclusion I'm I'm okay. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, and and I think all of these things that have to do with performance, whether you're trying to be a great athlete or you're trying to be a successful business person, you know, why does it matter? And 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 if you trace it back, it matters because we believe that somehow our experience with ourselves is going to be better, right? If we become more successful or make more money. And so here we are, this culture where we we've got more money and we've got more stuff than we ever had. In fact, we've got a multi-billion-dollar storage industry. Because we as Americans have accumulated so much stuff, it doesn't even fit into our house now. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks and for it, reminding me of that. It's almost yeah. the end of the year. I need to clean out my storage. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the same time, you know, one in four of us have a diagnosable psychological disorder. We've got more substance abuse than we ever had. We have more anxiety and depression than we ever have because the things that we're pursuing to have, if you will, and to do is not getting us there. Right. And so my sense is, is that until we, in, until we make those, you know, kind of connect the dots and figure that out, we're going to keep performing at a high level and being just or more miserable than we ever have. Right. You know, I mean, you can see it with high school kids about the competition to get into the right school, right? Or you know, I mean, when I was coming along, nobody studied for the SAT or the ACT. You just got up Saturday morning <laughs> right. and went and took it. You know, <laughs> no, and, and now, so you, right. you know, you spend a year preparing for it, you know, those oh, kinds then, of things. And, then, and now we have the PSAT to, to do the yes. testing to see exactly. how you'll do when you test. Now, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and that, that pressure, you know, the college pressure, I mean, having just gone through it, I remember my daughter on, on uh, graduation night when she was going to have to walk, walk across the stage and everybody, you know, was obviously sharing where they were going to school and right. she could she couldn't even apply for the University of Warsaw for their program until June sixth, which was a month after graduation. And yeah. and so she you know, she she had been accepted a couple of other places, so of course they said something. But the desire of her heart was to get into this program because it's a five year master's program. Uh, right. so as an eighteen year old, you know, she, five years from now and thank God, five thousand mm. dollars a year she will end up with her master's degree. And, uh, you know, and, and so she walked across that stage with, you know, the desire of her heart in her heart, but not not able to shout it out to the world, right? And, and there's yeah. a lot of pressure yeah. from that. But, you know, uh, and I, I love one of the last chapter I want to talk about, and we've gone a little bit longer than I had, had uh, anticipated today, but I, I've really been engaged in this. So uh, I hope, hope you didn't have somewhere you had to be. Um, no, the last thing I want you to just kind of close it out with is, is how do you become the hero of your own journey? And, and again, I was thinking about this for my daughter because she mm -hmm. already knew she was going to do everything she could to get into that program. And they only accept 44 kids. And don't you know right. the day that, that she was supposed to find out, she was number 45. And so she didn't oh, get really? in. But wow. but then a couple of days later, somebody who had gotten accepted must have accepted someplace else. So she, she right. did get accepted into the program. And wow. and she, you know, she did her best, right? I mean, everything you're sure. talking about in this, I, and I've been so proud of her, uh, you know, watching her. But, but 
let's again bring this back to the corporate life because most of our listeners are going to be corporate. Right. So how do you right. become the hero of your own journey, becoming the person that you want to be, having that elite mind, and yeah. and really thinking differently because that's what this book is all about, right. helping us think differently. Well, you know, and I think when it comes to the journey and, and you know, uh, that whole sense of what am I going to do from a career standpoint, how am I going to spend my time, I think the first thing we have to realize is no one can tell you that. And a lot of parents and people in business, that we make the mistake of believing that we sh- we have the insight on what you should do, right? I remember early on, you know, having some assessment done, and they told me that I should go into sales, and just the thought of that made me nauseous. <laughs> and and so part of what happens is I see people in mid career and they go, I hate my job and I hate what I do and I and I go, Well, you know, why why are you doing this? And they go, Well, you know, my dad told me that, you know, being an accountant would be a good job or being an attorney would be a good job. And so we it starts with we we have to be very careful about telling other people who they are and what they should do. I think what we really should say, and what I've said to my kids is, I I don't know what you're going to end up doing, but you'll figure it out. But I can't tell you what that is, and no one else can. And versus a lot of times people are asking us to tell them, you know, in in the business sector, you know, what should I do? So I think that's the, the first thing is being willing to accept the fact that no one has that answer for you. And at the same time, you know, we get in this concept of, you know, what comes up with people to I me, mean, you know, is about I need to find out what my purpose is. And 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 I feel like we all have the same purpose. In other words, my purpose and your purpose is the same. And for me, it's simply this. My purpose is, is to identify what it is that I do well. What are my natural gifts and talents? Okay. Right. Develop those to the, to the extent that I can and then use them in the service of everyone that I come into contact with. And a lot of people, they get hung up on it because they, they, they for them, the goal is, is I want to be happy. And, and what I want to say to them is forget about your happy. Find out what you do, practice doing it to the best of your ability, and put it out there in the world. And what you will see is you will see your life having a positive effect on other people's lives. Right. That's what's going to make you happy. Right? In other words, you don't become happy by pursuing happy. And this is the problem. We have all these people going, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And I go, forget about being happy. Okay? Happy is not something you do. It's the result of what you do. Yeah, and I actually prefer in this context the word joy because – Yes. Joy mm-hmm. is, is actually this concept of having lasting happiness, mm-hmm. even in the midst yes. of chaos. And I, I was listening yep. on my way uh, here today. I was listening to an interview with one of the authors of a, a book called The Book of Joy, which was mm-hmm. an interview with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, really about right. their time in exile and their time in prison, and mm-hmm. and how and the joy that they experienced in those awful, awful situations. And I know some sure. people today who are listening to this feel like they're in prison, right? Their their job mm-hmm. or their their situation, um, right. you know, that, that they're in exile or whatever, and, and that it is still possible 
to, to find joy. And Stan, I tell you what, you know, I told you this was just going to be a 30 minute interview today and I, I uh, uh-huh. appreciate you spending uh, nearly an hour with us. And the book again, that we've been talking about is elite minds, how winners think differently to create a competitive edge and to maximize success. Stan, can you tell folks how they can get in touch with you if they want you to come in and speak to their sure. team or to their company or at a conference? Right. Um, what is the best way to reach you? So my website is drstanbeecham.com, just D-R-Stan, and then Beecham is B-E-E-C-H-A-M, drstanbeecham.com. And you get there, you can find my phone number and email address. Uh, if you want to get a, a copy of the book, you, there's a link to Amazon uh, there as well. But but Dr. Stan Beecham is the best way to track me down. Fabulous. Well, again, I so appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Chicky. I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, oh, me too. And again, I, I cannot wait to see my son's reaction to your book. And I, I uh, texted my daughter in uh, in Warsaw and told her I'm going to send her a copy of the uh, interview to send to her professors. And I think right. it would be really, really fascinating, uh, you know, to have you come over and, and uh, sometime in, in the course of her five-year program to give this whole sports psychology uh, perspective as well as how you transition mm-hmm. that to corporate psychology. Because, you know, back to the beginning of your story of having gone through and, you know, going back to get your doctorate and doing the clinical route, um, right. You know, a lot of psychology students, I think, do get disillusioned during that time, but there's so much you can do with that psychology degree. I've spent my whole life, obviously, in, in the corporate side and think how, how beneficial it would have been for me to have a better understanding of the mind. Yeah, so I really do think there's mind. some, yeah, I think there's some really core psychological concepts that we should teach all people. Right, right. Uh, you know, not just people that are seeking therapy, but there's there's a you know, just the foundation of how your mind works and how you influence it, almost like an owner's manual. Is, is, and that's Definitely. what I do a lot with my clients, and it makes a big difference. Definitely. Well, again, I so appreciate your time today. And for those of you who are listening, uh, if you are driving or working out or someplace where you don't have a pen, uh, you can go to thegamechanger.network, and uh, you will see how you can order his book. Uh, you can, again, re-listen to the interview if you missed any portion of it. And we would love to have you join us on a regular basis. We have a little bit of an erratic schedule for the rest sure. of the month because of the holidays. But, again, thank right. you so much for listening today. And, Stan, uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Chicky, and happy holidays to everyone. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm.